Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Supporters of a bill that would legally give terminally ill people the option to end their lives were at the Capitol this week to make a last-minute pitch to New York lawmakers who are still on the fence over the issue. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Advocates stood in an underground passage to the Capitol in front of memorial posters lined up against the wall. The posters feature the stories of loved ones who they say died suffering because they did not have the medical option to end their lives. Corinne Carey, the campaign director for the measure, known as Medical Aid in Dying, says the bill could change those outcomes. New York's Medical Aid in Dying Act would allow someone who's terminally ill to ask their physician for a prescription for medication that they can take at a time of their choosing or never should their suffering become unbearable. Opponents, including the Catholic Church, say it's wrong for someone to facilitate their own death, even if they are in the final stages of life. Some groups that advocate for people with disabilities worry that the law could be misused to end their lives prematurely. Carey says the bill has built-in safeguards to prevent abuse. Including confirmation from two doctors of the terminal illness that has to be incurable and irreversible, uh, and they have to make the request in writing and orally. And she says no one, not a family member, hospice worker, or health care proxy, can make that decision for them. Melissa Milch is the daughter of Dr. Robert Milch, a hospice care physician. She says she grew up hearing stories from her father about the suffering endured by many of his patients in their final months and weeks of life. Milch says her father, through his practice, viewed medical aid in dying as a natural extension of -of end-of-life options that patients should have. Milch says her father asked for that option himself when his cancer became terminal. She says he spent the last few weeks of his life advocating for it. He spent a very, very good portion of his time when he was able and healthy enough, calling lawmakers and writing letters to the editor and talking about the importance of patient advocacy, of patient autonomy, of having peaceful death versus a death filled with suffering and strife. The bill did not advance. Dr. Milch died in June of 2021. Carey and other advocates take hope from two amendments to the bill released in the past few days. One would require that both witnesses who signed the request be unrelated to the patient. It originally required only one to be unrelated. Another amendment would require that the attending doctor, as well as the state health department, provide educational material on alternatives like hospice and palliative care. Carey says they will try in the final two weeks of the session to garner the votes needed for the measure to pass. There's a world of time between now and June 9th. Uh, In Albany terms, if they have the will to do it, it can get done. The neighboring state of Vermont recently updated its medical aid in dying law to allow people from other states, including New York, to access the procedure. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. As thousands of asylum seekers continue to arrive in New York City and are sent upstate, Albany and New York City officials are finally talking to one another. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas has more. 
When New York City began moving migrants to upstate areas, county governments began taking steps to stop any resettlement efforts in their tracks. Many county executives, including Albany's Dan McCoy, issued states of emergency that New York City ignored. McCoy said offers to house migrants had been made to Capital Region motels. Some of those offers were accepted and confusion ensued when asylum seekers ended up in a colony motel, which happened to have an Albany zip code. Town officials immediately took steps to stop the flow. Then one bus and another arrived in the sanctuary city of Albany. McCoy says on Wednesday, local leaders were finally able to connect with New York City via Zoom and Mayor Kathy Sheehan asked for a temporary stop. She asked for a pause before the uh, new new people came in last night at the Holiday Inn in downtown Albany. So I think we're up to 175 from the 80 she had uh, at the Ramada. So I think she wanted a pause to connect all services and stuff so they can do it right. McCoy says initially he was unable to get straight answers from New York Mayor Eric Adams' office. But after the Zoom meeting and being told to expect more migrants this week, he is hopeful lines of communication will stay open. We're going to have better dialogue. They did indicate to us, though, uh, what they do is they get a bus and they get volunteers. They try, you know, try to uh, see if anyone wants to come to Albany. And once they fill that bus, that's when they ship it out. So uh, unfortunately, I don't see that getting any better. Adams Press Secretary Fabian Levy responded to a request for comment by email explaining that the city is in the midst of a humanitarian crisis as the count of asylum seekers rises to 72,000. Sarah Lowry with the Albany Office of the U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants says New York City is responsible for any of the costs associated with sheltering migrants in different cities. She adds those who have arrived in the capital region have been vetted. Everybody has a different story, and I've only met with a few people, but um, I can tell you that everyone that I met with and, and have talked to all the, the government is well aware of them. They have crossed over the southern border, that's correct, but they've met with ICE. Um, they have check-in dates, which they are committed to keeping. They have no intention of, you know, falling out of compliance with their with their rules and, and check-ins with immigration. So the narrative that they are here and not accounted for or not wanting to comply with their requirements um, is not true. Meanwhile, McCoy is calling for the federal government to step in. Everyone has a different story to tell, and, and that's a problem. you got all these people that want to help, but we're tripping on each other. And that's why we need a national plan, not just to fix the immigration to come here legally, which is broken, uh, to fix what's going on around this nation. About 400 people total are expected in Albany's first wave of migrants. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has been sending migrants to upstate New York communities. 
Some county leaders declared states of emergency in an attempt to stop more migrants from coming to their localities. Others, like Westchester County Executive George Latimer, a Democrat, welcomed migrants. The issue led me to expert Sarah Rogerson, Albany Law Professor and Faculty Director of the Immigration Law Clinic, who shared her thoughts this week with me on the migrant situation in New York. I am in the thick of a joyful, beautiful, celebratory welcome, and I would not want to be anywhere else. New York State has been welcoming immigrants and refugees from all over the world for centuries. There are 4.4 million immigrants in New York State, making up a quarter of the entire population. This is not new. And Albany is, of course, the capital of that state, uh, one of the most powerful states in the country. So this is an opportunity, really. Um, to signal to the rest of the country that we need to undo the harmful rhetoric that was hypercharged under the Trump administration. We need to shut down any of that rhetoric that's happening in our county or in our localities, particularly in New York State. And what's a little, what's more than a little distressing is that um, the way that this has happened, unfortunately, it didn't have to happen this way, but, you know, one day maybe we'll write a good government paper about how to do this better the next time. But these folks are arriving in Albany with less information about them than, you know, our ans- some of our ancestors arrived at Ellis Island fleeing World War II. And that's a real problem on the ground. So we have like a short-term logistical issue because we have to do things the hard way, um, identify where people are coming from, what languages they speak, and so on. Can I ask, because I know some of the county executives, even Newhouse of Orange County, mm. Steve Newhouse, who seemed a little more reasonable than some, but was saying some of the information we just don't have. They have lanyards, but we don't know what status they are, who they are. So there is an information gap. There's an information gap. And what I'm seeing from a good government perspective is Albany County is really working hard with these other counties to say, like, all right, what are you guys seeing? How can we build on 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 what you've been doing? The frustrating thing is that all of this could have avoid been avoided with like a logistical orderly process. Um, and you know, I, I think after the dust settles and we see some of the the key breakdowns in communication, that would be a really interesting area of focus for improvement. But in the meantime, you know, um, Really sort of um, this is a a moment for New York State to decide whether they want to be on the right side of history or whether we're going to continue the steep decline in our immigration laws and policies and send a message, quite honestly, to Washington, D.C. that like, you know, you don't need to fix this system. It's fine the way that it is. Um, You know, it's working exactly as it was designed to, which is, um, you know, racist and um, exclusionary. We can send a different message to D.C. and I hope that we do. You know, and we don't know who these people are necessarily and that's not a judgment who are these people that you work with who what are the services that you're trying to provide them with information we can alleviate what seems to be a prevalent emotion in our society fear so one thing that we do know about all of these folks is that they are seeking asylum at some point in the process of and and many of them came from the border right and and we're sent to New York City without process either. So like, there's plenty of blame to go around. I'm not assigning um, blame yet (laughs) until we know more about what happened. But like, one thing is clear is that there were individuals in border areas, um, some who were political actors, who were politically motivated to uh, send people 
whether or not it was um, willful or not, to New York. And now we're um, working on doing the job that the federal government should be doing. Fine. So be that as it may, the one piece of information that we do have is that everybody is seeking asylum. So everyone has fled religious, political, gender-based persecution. Among like There's like a whole parade of horribles um, that I could list and talk in detail about, but that would be a really depressing show. We know that these folks are seeking protection. Asylum is a lawful way to enter the United States. Um, if you enter the United States without permission and claim asylum, you are still lawfully seeking um, a path to citizenship. So if for people who are saying, why don't these people get in line? That's they're in line. They're in line. Um, the problem is that our federal immigration system is so broken that asylum seekers don't automatically get work authorization. Right. And that's the big ask from like county and state leaders to the federal government right now, like shorten the time for employment authorization and make sure asylum seekers are eligible for it like now or in 30 days, subject to a vetting process and fingerprints and all that stuff, right? Like way more security than you ask for when you get new neighbors, right? When people move in next to you in your house uh, or apartment or dwelling space, wherever you are, you don't like ask to see their papers and and their criminal history. You don't tell them to submit to fingerprinting. You just say like, hey, here's some cookies. Um, Hopefully we have something in common and don't argue with each other, right? And and maybe something even more beautiful than that. So that's what we're attempting to do in a mass movement situation in hotel rooms, which is not ideal. That's Sarah Rogerson, Albany law professor and faculty director of the Immigration Law Clinic. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Nauman Hussein, the operator of the limo company involved in the 2018 Schoharie crash that killed 20 people, was sentenced this week to 5 to 15 years in prison. The sentence came after a jury earlier this month found Hussein guilty of manslaughter. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard was in court for the emotional proceedings. In 2018, the vehicle belonging to Prestige Limousine traveled down a steep hill in Schoharie and crashed into a parking lot, killing all 17 passengers, the driver, and two bystanders. Three years later, the company's operator, Naman Hussein, pleaded guilty to 20 counts of criminally negligent homicide, avoiding trial in exchange for probation and community service. In 2022, Judge Peter Lynch rejected the plea deal leading to the Springs trial of the now 33-year-old who managed the company owned by his father, a former FBI informant now believed to be in hiding overseas. On May 17th, Hussein was found guilty of 20 counts of manslaughter in the second degree. In a Schoharie County courtroom packed with the families of the survivors of the crash Wednesday, Judge Lynch read each count aloud to Hussein, who was seated in shackles and orange garb from the county jail. Of law, those indeterminate terms of imprisonment are to run concurrently. For an aggregate indeterminate term of imprisonment with a maximum of 15 years and a minimum of five years. 
prior to sentencing, several family members of the crash victims delivered emotional impact statements, some for the second time after Hussein's 2021 plea entry. During sentencing, Hussein hung his head but did not speak. As the crowd filtered out into the lawn of the courthouse, special prosecutor Fred Wrench explained that the case came down to Hussein's decision to ignore safety regulations. The case appeared to be complex, but in the end it was a case of regulatory violation. By that I mean Mr. Hussein was required by law to comply with certain regulations. He failed to do so, although he knew what these regulations, he knew of the regulations and that they applied to him. He failed to abide by them, he failed to follow them, and this uh, crash occurred as a result of that. Outside in the sun, the lightened mood from the families contrasted against the heavy emotional setting of the courtroom. Mary Ashton, who lost her son, Michael Ukai, said her son, a former Marine, had his life taken from him in a selfish act by Hussein. My son's life meant something. And as I found out a week and a half ago, he was a hero in Iraq. And now I can't even say congratulations, Michael. I'm really proud of you. It's just a horrible thing. It's just a horrible thing. Kevin Cushing, who lost his son Patrick in the crash and also served on New York's Stretch Limousine Passenger Safety Task Force, said he was happy for the families who have grown close since the crash. The families have pushed for limo safety reforms at the state and federal level. I'm happy for them. I'm happy for us. Um, it's, It's still not closure. We, we will never get closure from an accident like this and, or a decision like this. Don't expect closure. Don't want closure. Want Patrick to remain in our hearts and top of mind for the rest of our lives. That, that's our blessing. We, we always have his memories, and we'll keep those memories close to us and treasure Donna Rivenberg, who lost her daughter Amanda, was disappointed Hussein chose not to speak. He has never in all this time ever said he was sorry. You killed 20 people over money. That's just insane. Hussein's defense attorney, Lee Kindlin, who said he had a lot of respect for the families who spoke in court, said his client wanted to address them, but he cautioned against it. His words to me today were, can I stand up and finally say something? And I said, no, you may not, Um, which is what I told the judge, is uh, only on the advice of counsel is he not going to say anything. Hussein was remanded to the custody of the Schoharie County Sheriff's Office for processing before being turned over to the state prison system. Kindlin filed his intention to appeal after the sentencing. So obviously we have some legal disagreements uh, that the judge chose not to instruct the jury uh, about third-party liability. Um, That's probably going to be one of our first points. And it's my hope that the trial record helps explain that to the appellate courts. In addition to the criminal case, civil suits have been brought by the families against Hussein, his father, Mavis Discount Tire, and New York State. A day before sentencing, families received a long-sought briefing from the FBI over the agency's reported ties to the Hussein family. Reporting from Schoharie, I'm Lucas Willard. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The debt ceiling and budget cuts package passed the U.S. House this week and now goes to the Senate. 
President Biden negotiated the deal with Republican Speaker Kevin McCarthy to avert a U.S. default crisis. Despite disappointment from hard-right Republicans that budget cuts don't go far enough and progressives who are unhappy with concessions from the White House, the deal was approved on a bipartisan vote. The bill restricts spending for the next two years, raises the debt ceiling through January 2025, and changes policies, including new work requirements for older Americans receiving food aid and adjustments to permitting for energy projects. New York Congressman Pat Ryan, a Democrat from the 18th District, voted to approve the measure and spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis while heading back from Washington on Thursday. There were two main imperatives. We needed to prevent an unprecedented, what would have been a catastrophic default, which we've never done in the country's history. And two, we had to protect veterans, seniors, kids, vulnerable people who a group of far-right extremists had had worked and and really pushed to cut cruel cuts that would have really hurt them uh, at a time where we need to be helping people, providing relief to people. So I was proud to join in a bipartisan way with with colleagues and both prevent catastrophic default and also protect uh, a whole lot of Americans that needed us to fight to protect them in the face of these threats. One of the matters that this deal addresses um, work requirements for certain recipients of SNAP and similar aid programs. Are you okay with those work requirements that are included in this deal? This is an area where we fought really hard. I'm frustrated that this was even on the table. I I don't think it should have been. I think we need to be giving more food assistance to more Americans. Uh, So we fought very hard on uh, on this issue on expanding uh, food food access and food support SNAP. Um, Unfortunately, the the far-right forces that were trying to do much more aggressive cuts we're able to get some through. I do think it's important for folks to know on the other side of this, though, President Biden and, and House Democrats pushed really hard to add a bunch of categories of folks um, for expanded SNAP coverage, including uh, veterans, including homeless and, and um, folks that are housing insecure, and also foster children up to the age of, or former foster children up to the age of 24. So it, we should never be in a situation where we're having to pit different groups of vulnerable people against each other. And, and uh, but given that that's where the other side was pushing hard here, I think we did the best we could. Um, and, and the CBO analysis, the Congressional Budget Office analysis, actually shows that more people net will be covered. Uh, but again, to be clear, I, I want to continue to push uh, to, to expand coverage as we come into the Farm Bill renewal this, this year. You mentioned this was a tough compromise, tough negotiations. Both sides said that. This deal raises the debt ceiling until January 2025. Are we going to be back in the same situation in less than two years from now? Well, I think it's there's always going to be a running dialogue, as I think there should be, and debate about what is the right balance of overall spending and, and then also what is the right balance of expenditures and revenues. One of my big frustrations, and I'm going to keep fighting and pushing on this point, is we put on the table that, hey, look, if you want to reduce the deficit, what we need to be getting rid of is the tax breaks for the ultra-wealthy and big corporations that pay zero in corporate tax. And unfortunately, McCarthy and uh, far-right extremists wouldn't even put that on the table. But there's 55-plus big corporations, the biggest corporations in the country that pay zero in tax, like Amazon in corporate tax, there's a, a, a still in place in our tax code, a deduction 
if you have a yacht, a deduction if you have a private plane. I mean, if we want to be serious about this, those are the things we need to cut, not veterans, not uh, seniors and Medicare and Social Security and kids that are hungry. Now, 46 Democrats voted against this package, including progressives who were unsatisfied with the concessions President Biden made in the negotiations with Speaker McCarthy. Are you satisfied with the president's and the White House's approach here? Well, I voted yes, because the, the option, the other option was what would have been a catastrophic default. We would have seen 401ks and pensions and retirements hugely impacted, uh, massive, potentially catastrophic economic consequences, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, So these are always weighty and hard decisions. But I'm a a pragmatist. Uh, You have the two options in front of you. And to me, it was very clear we were able to both prevent default and and really protect against the vast majority of the the, the far-right attacks on veterans and seniors and kids. And so, uh, you know, I I think that's that was a good outcome. I, I credit President Biden and his team. They negotiated and fought really hard uh, and I think delivered uh, the best possible outcome for the American people. What's your confidence level of the package passing now in the Senate? Well, hearing from and talking to colleagues there, I think we're on a good path to do so. Uh, I know, you know, our fellow New Yorker, uh, Leader Schumer is working hard and understands in the same way the existential consequences here, and they're planning to work through the weekend if, if necessary. So I, I'm optimistic. I think looking at the House results should be encouraging. We, we had a very broad bipartisan coalition. In fact, uh, there were more House Democrats that voted for this than House Republicans uh, to get it over the line and prevent catastrophic default. So I think that bodes well for uh, getting 60 votes in the Senate. Um, and uh, I, I just I think folks have to understand this shouldn't be partisan at this point. This is an American responsibility and duty that we all have to prevent an unprecedented and catastrophic default at the end of the day. That is the big imperative. What do you make of arguments from some, such as Democratic Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, that the federal debt ceiling should be eliminated outright? Yeah, this is something that I'm certainly open to hearing the case. But my view, I mean, I've managed budgets as a CEO of businesses I've started. I had to balance a budget as a county executive in, in Ulster County. We have to be always fiscally responsible and, and thoughtful. I do think that, yes, there's often contentious debates, but those are healthy, small-D democratic debates about are our priorities right? Is the balance of expenditures and revenues right? And I do think that just like we all do in our families uh, and our personal lives and our businesses, having this debate of do we want to up how much we're borrowing, essentially, is an important exercise for our democracy. So I would be inclined to preserve it, but certainly I'm always open to hearing from colleagues with, with new ideas. That's New York Congressman Pat Ryan, a Democrat from the 18th District, speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Jim Lavoulis. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcasts.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2322 and join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustinum.